And turn with me for our ongoing study, which will be coming to a close in just another week or so. We are at sermon number 18, or study number 18, as we've made our way through Paul's epistle to the Colossians. And I would have you turn again now to Colossians in chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. We cannot pray too much. Pray with me now for the essential ministry of the Holy Spirit to take this inspired truth and bring it on home to our hearts and our minds. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp for our feet, a light on the path we take to follow you. This particular portion of your word, you show us how to redeem the time we spend in the midst of unbelievers. You have called us to be your witnesses, and we want to be wise ambassadors for our Lord and King, lifting up the message of his cross. So help us to learn our lessons well, so we might more effectively spread your fame and bring you glory in all the earth, we ask in Jesus' majestic name. Amen. Now, a number of you may have picked up a copy of this journal. I believe there are still some copies available on the literature table back there. It is called The Voice of the Martyrs. We appreciate the generosity of a faithful couple uh, in our church family here who have made this available to us. The magazine is important because it chronicles the kind of suffering and persecution and martyrdom that is taking place right now in various parts of the world. And we are meant to be informed. We are meant to pray for our brothers and sisters who right now are paying a very high price for their commitment to Jesus Christ. In this particular special edition, which I recommend you get a copy of, the life of Pastor Richard Wormbrand is summarized. Many years ago, it was out of his own afflictions as a prisoner under a very cruel communist regime that he would eventually become the founder of this ministry, Voice of the Martyrs. I'd like to share with you a portion of his story because it is a true life illustration of what Paul has in mind here when he gives us Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Let me read the uh, story to you. In 1951, Pastor Richard Wormbrand, who had already served more than three years in prison, was dragged to a cell called Room 4. This room was also known as the Death Room, for no one came out alive. Richard was suffering from tuberculosis and at the brutal hands of the communists who had beaten him mercilessly over countless interrogation sessions. 
it was assumed he would die within a few weeks. And while in the death room, friends who cared about Richard managed to smuggle in some penicillin. But Richard asked that it be given to another man who was even more ill. His trial had been held outside his cell while he was only half conscious. He was charged with spreading imperialist ideology under the cover of religion, among other things. Of course, all he was doing was proclaiming the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we do here so freely. To his own defense, he simply stated, quote, I love the Lord. Richard was sentenced to 20 years of hard labor. The trial had taken less than 10 minutes. When Richard was first arrested, the officer locked him in a solitary cell. He was given a new identity and tortured. They used their favorite weapon to force a confession, the weapon of fear. Eventually, Richard's wife, Sabina, was also arrested, and they told the pastor his son had been imprisoned as well. The communists played recordings of a child, the same age as Richard's son, being beaten in the cell next to his. Hearing the screams of the child, Richard nearly went mad. The guards tormented him, telling his family would be no more. He would never see them again. They told him over and over, there is no God. There is only communism. When the ranking officer caught Richard praying in his cell, he tormented him all the more. Why would you pray? You have lost everything. What do you have left that you could possibly be praying for? The pastor looked up and told the officer, I am praying for you. Pastor Wormbrand survived 14 years in a communist prison for his Christian life and activities and would go on to begin the work of the Voice of the Martyrs. You and I may never be put to such extremes as Pastor Wormbrand, but can you see, I wonder, the application of Colossians 4, 5, and 6? Look at the verse and consider that story I just shared. First, with divine wisdom, Wormbrand answered the guard with an eternal perspective. I am praying for you. He made the most of an opportunity. I mean, how much can anyone do under those kinds of circumstances? But he made the most of an opportunity. He was asked a sneering question, but he answered with a merciful pity. I am praying for you. What abounding grace in those words to his persecutor. I am praying for you. 
And in light of the Colossians text, I would suggest to us that it is a grace-filled or a gracious response and had in it a dash of salt. For surely the guard had to wonder, just what is this man praying for as he's praying for me? And could we think of any better response than that of worm brands in that particular situation to that individual person acting as harmless as a dove, but knowing there was power in the words, simple words, I am praying for you. Hear the text again. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each. And I would add the clarifying term individual, each individual person. The hateful guard says, why are you praying? You've lost everything. What do you have left that you could possibly be praying for? And the pastor looks up and tells the officer, I'm praying for you. I hear in that the echo of Calvary. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Words of grace with a dash of salt. Chances are we may not be tortured for our faith this week, especially here in America. We might think that the long lines at the store or the rude person in the car that just pulled out in front of you to be a great burden. By the way, that could be me. Or how do you feel about that particular family member or acquaintance that always seems to find a subtle way to put down or even overtly ridicule your faith in God? As well, you know that we are called to be a witness to the gospel and that it somehow, folks, would just not be right for us to always be hanging out at church and finding other believers who believe the way we do to be our only friends or acquaintances. These two verses provide an inspired strategy I think, for how to storm the gates of hell and take captives for Jesus Christ and his expanding kingdom. Unlike some other religions, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are subversively and wonderfully spiritual. Put away your sword, Peter. You remember that? Aren't you glad we're not called to blow ourselves up in a crowd in order to call attention to the passion we have in following our God? First thing Paul says is, verse 5, conduct yourselves. I want to stop right there for a moment. Conduct yourselves. This, this is that reminder that when it comes to outsiders, those outside of God's grace or unbelievers, your conduct and mine is of utmost importance. First importance, it's what Paul instructs. I want us to be reminded that to name the name of Christ, which we do, 
is to move into a glass house. And we might as well accept that responsibility. Sometimes I think we complain about it. The fact that unbelievers and what they do freely and carelessly and selfishly and sometimes even rudely, they'll be the very same people to say to you, you did that. You said that and and you call yourself a Christian. That's those times when I wish I had the bumper sticker that reads Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. We may feel like saying sometimes get off my case. But the scriptures give us no such right. We can tell people that they should not judge Jesus by his followers. Have you ever heard that one? Oh, please don't judge our Lord by his followers. But the fact is, they will. And to some extent, biblically, they have a right to. The Bible says, let unbelievers see your good works, your commitment to obey God in all things. And they will then glorify your Father in heaven sooner or, if need be, later at judgment. 1 Peter 3.16, Apostle Peter writes, Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered by outsiders, those who revile your good behavior will eventually be put to shame. In other words, personal conduct before the watching world of unbelievers is a responsibility we cannot shirk. It's teaching me that I need to lay off the horn. I entitled this message, Permission to Speak. As in gaining the right to speak of Christ to unbelievers. And Paul says it begins with godly, Christ-like behavior. Conduct yourselves. Then he writes, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. If nothing else, my friends, this is certainly a call to think before We speak. I fear that so many of us have spent so much time with one another, sharing our mutual beliefs, using the shorthand of Christian cliches, liking what we like, wanting what we want in the closed circle that we call Christian fellowship, that somehow perhaps we have really lost touch with the things that shape The thoughts and the values, the longings and loneliness, the need for love and acceptance that weigh down the hearts of sin-laden souls of unbelievers. Some of you, by the grace of God, by the grace of God, have been believers for so long, you forget what it was like to live without any real hope or eternal perspective in this world. I'll remind you that you got saved by the wisdom of God that chose to not judge, neither by your outward appearance nor your sinful practices, which were many. 
in wisdom. Aren't you glad he came to you with a gospel of grace that looked beyond your faults and saw your need? Hymn writer Fanny Crosby, my favorite, understood what it means to conduct yourselves with wisdom toward the perishing. She wrote these words down in the human heart, crushed by the tempter. Feelings lie buried that grace can restore. Touched by a loving heart, wakened by kindness, chords that are broken will vibrate once more. And in case you're wondering where those lyrics come from, the rest of the words are rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save. Well, there's no question that Jesus is merciful. He saved the likes of you and me. The question is, do we have the same loving wisdom to withhold our self-righteous judgment and With the wisdom that understands the terrible fallen nature of man, its true bondage. For in that same hymn, Crosby says, plead with them earnestly. Plead with them gently. He will forgive them if only they believe. I want to say, beloved, may God deliver us frankly, from the stupidity that expects people to behave like Christians before they become one. And they only become one as they comprehend a message, not of judgment, but a message of welcoming grace to the unworthy. It's the gospel, good news, we're called to proclaim not the law. Last phrase in verse 5. It says, making the most of the opportunity. Let me say, and I say this also with great sobriety, dear Christian, people are not missing out on eternal life for lack of our opportunities to share the gospel. I'll say it again. People And people need the Lord. People are not missing out on eternal life for lack of our opportunities to share the gospel. Opportunities abound on every hand. Do you think the scriptures would say that Christ Jesus came into the world to seek and to save the lost? And then would somehow not provide us with opportunities to tell his story and explain the meaning of the cross. Notice the text carefully. The apostle doesn't tell us to go out and make opportunities. He tells us to make the most of the opportunities that are already there. Your opportunity is anyone who's in your face at any given moment in the course of any day. An example of this 
if things should go from bad to worse in this present slippery slope of our nation's economy, I will tell you whole new opportunities will open up to minister to those in real need. If we weren't so depressed about our pensions, we just might get excited as Christians. The church in history has always done its greatest gospel work in times of distressing human need. Why do you think so many hospitals were once named after the saints? Rescue missions offering a hot bowl of soup for the desperate have done more to increase the kingdom than all the air-conditioned, padded pews and expensive facilities that boast a steeple. Someone said true. Thank you. This very week, in the midst of hard times, on Thanksgiving Day, one of the bars in town fed a full-course turkey dinner to hundreds of people, some of them recently forced out of their homes. A tavern owner and a barkeeper with a better testimony to practical good works than some churches. Ouch. There are plenty of opportunities, and there will be more. Make the most, he says, of every opportunity. Now, when we've earned the permission to speak, verse 6, I think, is worth its weight in gold. Look at it with me again. Let your speech... Always be with, you tell me, grace. Well, let me ask, do you speak in such a way that grace is in your tone of voice as well as your message? You know, when Pastor Wormbrand said to that cruel guard, I'm praying for you. In your sanctified imagination, what tone of voice do you think he spoke those words to that guard? I'm praying for you that God will make you pay for what you've done to me. I'm praying for you, otherwise you're going to hell. Or perhaps... And I know this is true. It was a more grace-filled tone of voice that would make the jailer, this is where the dash of salt comes in, that would want to make the jailer wonder how a man he tortured is a man that at the same time seems to be genuinely concerned for his soul. Yes, Wormbrand knew this guard, would have to pay for his sins. Wormbrand knew that apart from the grace of God, this guard would spend eternity in an awful hell. So that when he says, I'm praying for you, 
It sounds like a breaking heart. A heart that has tasted grace. Wormbrand knew that once he was no better than the guard in the sight of God. That he knew he also had sins for which he must pay. And that he had a hell to escape. Apart from coming to the Savior. And so the pastor prayed. He prayed as one who knew that every man, woman, every boy and girl desperately needs the grace that is in Christ Jesus if they are to be saved. The lesson today I'm saying, I guess, is that our tongues need to be filled with the doctrines of grace, of God's sovereign grace. You don't have to turn there, but Luke chapter 4 at verse 22 says this of Christ himself. The multitudes wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Jesus said, I did not come to judge the world, but that the world through me might be saved. Now, that example of Jesus, I think, opens up for us the meaning of this reference to salt. I've made some comments already. Gracious words, grace-filled words that I would suggest make people wonder or thirsty for more. To hear more about what is being said. Let me say again, we are not doing the work of God when we simply pour salt in the sinner's wounds. That's not what is meant here. We are doing the work of God when we speak in such a way that sinners are made thirsty to hear even more of what God has done in Christ for their parched souls. You know the old line. You can lead a a horse to water, but you can't what? Can't make him drink. But a more wise farmer replied, no, you can't make him drink, but you can salt the oats. And beloved, more often than not, a sinner takes their first step toward the kingdom when they get a taste of the salt that accompanies the pure gospel of God's grace. The one who cried, I am the water of life. Let him who is thirsty come and drink a life-giving drink. So our grace-filled tone of voice can be God's means to create a thirst in the sinner that God has already purposed to call to himself. Now, there's a really cool verse tucked away in the book of Job. It may be instructive for us here as well. It comes in chapter 6, you don't need to turn there, where Job's friends are making all their judgmental, less than grace-filled speeches. And they have left Job with no comfort at all. And he says, with no taste for life. Poor Job, 
At that point in the narrative, he wonders aloud and he says this, and I quote, Can something tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? I don't want a hard-boiled egg without a little salt, no matter what the doctor says. You know that the gospel can be stated as a straightforward set of doctrinal propositions. I call it the egg white approach to people. Give them the facts. Pure protein. The white of the egg. The Romans road approach is sometimes misused, although I encourage the memorization of key scripture. But it's almost as though some would say, as they've learned to do personal evangelism, if you walk down this Romans road, you'll learn what it takes to be saved. Don't say I never told you. Romans 3.23, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Next! So there you have it. Get someone to listen long enough to your memory verses and then move on to the next person. Give enough people those verses, and I'm sincere here, folks, maybe someone will actually come to faith in Christ because, after all, those verses are the gospel message and the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The facts are essential. Memorize them. But like Job's friends, we may have done little more than hand them an unsalted egg. It's our text today that is saying so much more about the privilege and the responsibility that we have to share the glorious truth of the gospel. Sometimes I think we get the truth part down very well. But we forget that Ephesians 4.15, which, by the way, is the theme verse for all of Good Shepherd's ministry. If you didn't know, that's because I forgot to tell you. But it's on all my business cards and calling cards. Ephesians 4.15 says we're to speak the truth. But it says speak the truth with love. You can quote the verses in less than five minutes. But it takes a little longer and sometimes some inconvenience in most cases to demonstrate the love of Christ to those outsiders and to do so in a very personal way. I think it would be good to remember that loving your neighbor, which is, by the way, among the greatest of all commands, is the best way to gain permission to speak about Christ. I pointed this out earlier, but I'll just reemphasize it. Notice how personalized this approach really is. 
Verse 6, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. The message of the gospel, the facts must be there, but the message of the gospel, Paul says, should be tailor fit to each individual person with whom you speak. Have you noticed I've stopped wearing my glasses in the pulpit lately? It's because I can't see the clock without them. (laughs) Typically, when we use the cliche, personal evangelism, it is evangelical code for our own personal responsibility to share the gospel. The term personal there means us. But given the apostles' instructions, we ought to think more in terms of interpersonal evangelism. I like that much better. As we interact with real people, as we listen to them, and then as we speak to them with a grace-filled tongue, sprinkle just enough salt to their individual taste and ever so gently humbly, yet emboldened by love, earn the right to point them to their greatest need, which, of course, is the Lord and Savior of sinners. And by the way, when sooner or later, if you do that, you'll be asked, why do you care this much? You just let Jesus himself be your explanation to them as to why you care in the first place. One of the great preachers of a previous generation was Reuben Archer Torrey, better known in the 1920s as simply R.A. Torrey. He recorded in his journal back in the beginning days of his preaching that he felt he learned a vital lesson from a lesser known evangelist, Colonel Clark of Chicago. Whoever heard of Colonel Clark of Chicago? Moody, we know. Colonel Clark? Clark was a businessman who labored six days every week, but almost every night went down to the worst part of the city and preached the gospel. Torrey writes in his journal, it was a motley crowd, drunkards, thieves, pickpocketers, gamblers and everything hopeless. I went to hear him speak. And to me, he was one of the dullest talkers I have ever heard in my life. He would ramble along, and yet a crowd of five or six hundred men would lean forward and seem to listen spellbound. Some of the greatest preachers in Chicago used to go down and help Colonel Clark. But the crowds of men would not listen to them as they did to Clark. Many were being converted by the score. Tory says, at first I could not understand it and understand it and wondered what the secret was. I found it, however, in the testimonies of the newly saved. When Clark spoke of Christ to the hundreds of derelicts, He could never seem to conclude the poorly delivered sermon without tears flowing down his cheeks. Torrey continues the story in the early days of the mission. 
When Clark had been weeping a great deal over these men, he got embarrassed and ashamed and steeled his heart and tried to stop his crying. And he actually succeeded. But somehow he lost his power. He went before the Lord and pleaded, Oh God, give me back my tears. And God gave him back his tears and gave him wonderful power in his sharing of the gospel. Now, folks, I don't know if Colonel Clark ever became less boring to his hearers, but I know that God must have been honoring the words of Psalm 126 and verse 6, which says this. He that goeth forth weeping, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing in his sheaves with him. Ask the world with wisdom and love permission to speak. And it just may be your genuine salty tears and mine that make all the difference in some sin-hardened soul.